Mark 9, and we'll read from verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they, were no, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just that it is written about him. This is the eternal word of God. For us to understand and apply that eternal word of God, we're going to need God's help. So let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for this time. We thank you that we have the freedom here in this city to to open and, and study your word so freely. Father, we pray that you might reveal yourself to us in a special, in a new and a powerful way this evening. Please help us to see Jesus for who he really is, that we might be better equipped to live for and to minister for you in this world. In his precious name we pray. Amen. My brother Michael's a bit of a history buff. History buff. And he's got a particular passion for military history. He can tell you all about the world wars, where our family members fought, the strategies that were used to win the battles and even what kind of equipment they were using on the front lines. Now, I must admit, I don't have the same interest in military history as he does. But when I talk to him about this, I do often wonder if I was in the same situation as these men and women who were called to the front line, how would I respond? Would I be as strong as they were? Would I be as willing as they were to give their lives for a noble cause. Do you ever wonder that when you think about the wars? It's an enormous sacrifice that these brave men and women made, wasn't it? And they made that sacrifice all because they were captured by a vision that was so much bigger than themselves. A vision that energised them that helped them to persevere when times got tough. 
and that even led many, many hundreds of thousands to lay down their lives. If you think about it, it takes a big vision to lay down your life like that, doesn't it? And here in this section of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at tonight, I think Mark is asking a similar question of us. Last week we looked at what is probably the key passage in Mark's Gospel, where Peter at Caesarea Philippi declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And it felt like a lot that had been building had all come together. As inspired by the Spirit, Peter made this declaration. And from there on, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must suffer and die. That he needed to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life. But as we saw last week, the concept of a suffering Messiah was something that was just totally foreign to Peter. It was something that he just couldn't comprehend. And so he rebukes Jesus, telling him that, no, Jesus, you've got the plan all wrong. That, that can't be right. You can't be a suffering Messiah. And Jesus responds again by explaining what his kingdom is going to be like. It wasn't going to be a political kingdom based on military power or success. No, his kingdom was going to instead be marked by sacrifice, by preference for others, and ultimately being willing to lay down your life. And just as Jesus challenged his disciples, the same challenge lies before us tonight, doesn't it? How big is your Jesus? Is your Jesus big enough to give your whole life for? Is your Jesus so big that he overshadows all else in your life? More important than anyone or anything. Big enough to inspire you, to deny yourself and even be willing to die for him. It's an important question for us to ask. How big is your Jesus? Now, with that call to sacrifice and denial undoubtedly still bouncing around in the minds of the disciples, only six days later, we come to Jesus' transfiguration. The moment in Jesus' earthly ministry where his glory shines brighter than anywhere else. Where God shows the disciples and us here today that yes, Jesus is big enough. And so tonight, we're going to look at the transfiguration by looking at its purpose. Its purpose for the disciples, its purpose for Jesus, and then finally, its purpose for us here today. So let's start by looking at the purpose of the transfiguration for the disciples. In verse 2, Mark tells us that After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. This is the fulfilment of Jesus' words in verse 1 that we started our reading with tonight. 
The disciples are seeing very clearly the kingdom come with power. As Jesus is gloriously transfigured before them. The Greek word um, for transformation is the same word that we use as the root of metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is a change in form, isn't it? When we're in school, we tend to, to learn about that by looking at the transition from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And that's what we have here. Jesus goes through the most dramatic change in form. Suddenly, the, the glory that was hidden beneath the veil of his humanity bursts forth and it reveals his true identity to the disciples. For the vast majority of Jesus' earthly ministry, his glory was veiled. Despite what some artists might depict, Jesus didn't walk around with a glowing halo around his head. He looked just like any other man. He came in a very humble, very human form. As Philippians tells us, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself, foregoing the the right to be worshipped. And it was a humble existence, wasn't it? He was poor, homeless, at times hungry and thirsty, fatigued, abandoned, familiar with sorrow. Jesus didn't lose his divinity, but he did take on our humanity. And he did that so that he could fully identify with us fallen sinners, didn't he? So that at the cross he could pay the penalty that we owe. But here, just for a moment, up on the mountain, the veil is removed and we get just a small glimpse of the unsurpassable glory of Jesus. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Here in this moment, we see Jesus for who he really is. And I think this is a corrective for us. It's very easy for us to merely think about Jesus in his human form and to fail to recognise that that's not the full picture. His human form was veiling his true identity, which is incomprehensibly glorious. But not only does the transfiguration reveal Jesus' true identity, it also, very, in a very real way, confirms the declaration that Peter had just made, that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, this is six days later, and there's no doubt that the timing of the transfiguration was not a mistake. Peter's just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and the transfiguration confirms it. Now, of course, Jesus had provided glimpses of his true identity throughout his ministry, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, walking on water. They were all evidence that he was more than just a me man. But this, the transfiguration, it's the ultimate evidence. 
Last, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that in Jesus' ministry, by healing the blind, by having the mute speak, the disciples should have looked back to Isaiah and seen that Jesus was the fulfilment of all that was said about the Messiah. But here, you don't need to have been a biblical scholar to see what's going on. Because divine glory shines out from Jesus. It's clear. He is God. And there's also a beautiful allusion back to the Old Testament here. I don't know if you picked it up as Hamilton read. Back in Isaiah, back in Exodus chapter 24, we see the Lord call Moses, three leaders and 70 elders up the mountain, where God reveals just a shadow of his glory to these people. And here again, it's three leaders going up again, but this time they're with the better, greater, ultimate Moses. And the true glory of God is revealed. Not just a shadow, as was the case in Moses' day, but the glory of the eternal creator God is made visible in this moment. Just imagine being there. But not only is this a confirmation for the disciples, it also comes with a command. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Again, this verse is just pregnant with Old Testament symbolism. In the Old Testament, a cloud often symbolised the presence and the glory of God, didn't it? In the wilderness, it was a pillar of cloud and of fire that led the people. When God spoke to his people, he often did so from a cloud. And here he does the same, speaking directly to the disciples. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. In the original language, this word, akuyete, is an imperative in the present tense. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to you, but what it means is that this isn't just a one-off command. God isn't telling the disciples just in this moment to listen to Jesus. No, it's to happen on an ongoing basis, day after day. They're to continue to listen to him. This man has the divine stamp of approval. That's a reminder that we need too, isn't it? To listen to Jesus. In our world, there are so many voices that are competing for our attention. There's the media. There's false teachers. There's our friends and family. All calling on us to listen to them. But this command is equally true for us as it was for the disciples. We're to listen to the one man who has the words of eternal life, Jesus himself. All other voices are to fade away compared to his. As you'd expect if you'd been through a situation like this, all of this left a quite profound impression on the disciples. Peter, James and John would never be the same after this moment up on the mountain. Of course, 
They had their ups and downs. We see, those, we see that in the scriptures. But they would never be the same again. James became the first apostle to be martyred under King Herod in Acts 12. And John and Peter, who both went on to write books of the Bible, actually allude to this very moment in their books. It clearly made an impact on them. Have a look at John chapter 1 verse 14. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. We have seen His glory. And Peter also mentions this too. In 2 Peter 1.16 2 Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not just his ministry, but his majesty. Both Peter and John were clearly so touched and changed by this moment that they couldn't help but allude to it in their letters. And, in fact, we can actually see from their later lives and ministry that that moment would give them hope and strength. Because they had a new perspective on things. Because that veil was just lifted for a moment and they saw Jesus for who he really is. One more on the impact on the disciples. This moment reinforced to the disciples the true nature of Jesus' ministry. I love the Apostle Peter. It's one of the reasons why our son is named after him. I can really identify with him. He just has this innate ability to say exactly the wrong thing at the wrong time. I don't know, maybe some of you have foot in mouth disease too. Thankfully, with Peter, he he did improve with sanctification, and I know I'm praying that that happens for me as well. Because good old Pete says exactly the wrong thing again in verses 5 and 6. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Mark's very honest here. The disciples were so afraid that they didn't even know what to say. But what Peter does say is actually pretty revealing. This is great, Lord, he says. This is so good. We're in the presence of the Father. Let's stay here for as long as possible. You can understand it, can't you? Why would you want to leave the glory of God. But the transfiguration ends just as quickly as it began. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone, the Father's silent, and Jesus is there, not shining anymore. And in verses 9 and 10, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. 
As we've seen before in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells the eyewitnesses of a great event to remain quiet just for the moment. Jesus knew that they weren't quite ready yet to fully understand, to process the glory that they had just seen. They would only begin to understand that, we later see, after the tragedy of the cross and the glory of the resurrection and the ascension. Only then would this moment be comprehensible to them. And, quite naturally, as they'd just seen Elijah, in verses 11 to 13, the disciples start to wonder about the role that Elijah would have in the kingdom of God. And that's very natural, because you might remember when we studied Malachi last year, we saw the Lord say, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The disciples knew that one in the vein of the great Elijah would come before the Messiah, ushering in the new kingdom. And here Jesus says, Elijah has come. In, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 17, in Matthew's account, Matthew explains that the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And Jesus explains in verse 12 that just as John the Baptist had been ultimately rejected and killed, the same fate would await him, the Saviour. He too would be rejected and killed just as the prophets had foretold. And so here again, Jesus is reinforcing the true nature of his mission. Before the exaltation of the resurrection will come the very real humiliation of the cross. Now, that was point one, looking at the purpose of the transfiguration for the disciples. Don't worry, points two and three are a lot quicker. We're focusing mainly on the disciples tonight because Mark makes it pretty clear that the transfiguration was primarily for them. But something that we need to to mention and, and look at is something that's often neglected, which is the purpose of the transfiguration for Jesus himself. Sometimes I think as believers we can struggle to fully reconcile and mesh together the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Inadvertently at times we can tend to to emphasise one and and not the other. And in so doing we, we fail to have a complete picture of who Jesus really is. But we see in the scriptures that Jesus was fully human. He experienced the same struggles that you and I do. The difference being, of course, that he was without sin. And here I think we get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity because we see the Father transfiguring him and also ministering to him. Did you notice that when Hamilton read earlier? We see that in verse 2. Jesus didn't transfigure himself. No, the Father transfigured him. And in so doing, I love how the American pastor Derek Thomas puts it. The Father is ministering to his Son. The Father here in the Transfiguration is ministering to the Incarnate Son. 
Why do I say that? Well, as is often the case, Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail. Mark's a bit of a summarised account of Jesus' life and ministry. But when we look at the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke, we get a bit more of a clue as to what's going on here. You see, Luke 9, 30-31 makes this clear. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. We know that, Mark says that. But Luke gives us a bit more. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. We'd love to know the details of of that conversation. I don't know about you, I'd love to know actually how the disciples recognised Elijah. He'd been dead for many, many centuries. Did he have a name tag on or something? I don't know. But those details aren't given to us. But what is given to us is that God the Father comes and is ministering to his son, to his fully human son, in the moments leading up to heading off to Jerusalem and his suffering and his death. I can just imagine that Moses and Elijah maybe would have been reassuring Jesus in that moment of God's ongoing presence. Reaffirming that in fact the path of suffering is the mission. I think we can often neglect the purpose of the transfiguration for Jesus. But it's a very real part of what is going on here. Now let's finish by looking at the purpose of the transfiguration for us. Now, a lot of what we looked at under the heading of the disciples is equally applicable to us here. So, we're only going to focus in on a few, thi- on a few things. Here in these verses, as the veil of Jesus' glory is pulled back, we are reminded in a very real way that there is a reality beyond what we can see. There's more to this world than what we can see. There's a reality beyond the veil. There is a spiritual battle going on, we know that. But even in Jesus' ministry, there's a reality going on behind the events that people can see in here. And the reality of Jesus is glorious beyond description. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, puts it really, really well. He writes this, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts. That the world we all want, the world we were made for, a world of glory and perfection, a world not marred by sin, the world we all want is coming. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the world as it really is. And it's also a foretaste of Jesus' ultimate return to glory. I was struck by the way that Revelation chapter 21, 23 describes the glory that awaits those who trust in Jesus. Revelation 21, 23. The city, this is the eternal city, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The glory of Jesus, the glory that was revealed there on that mountain, that is the lamp 
of the eternal city. Doesn't that fill you with hope and expectation of one day seeing the same glory that the disciples saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration? But I think we also need to learn from Peter here in this scene. Because Peter, probably a bit like us, wanted the glory right now. He didn't want to wait for it. He didn't want to have to wait for the eternal city. He wanted the glory right now. And in fact, he failed to recognise the true nature of Jesus' kingdom. You see, just as Jesus had to come down from the Mount of Transfiguration to suffer and die, the same is true for us as the followers of the suffering Saviour. We need to come down from the mountain. The glory does await us too, but it lies on the other side of pain and conflict and trial and suffering, ridicule and rejection as we follow Jesus here in this world. The glory is to come, but there's going to be some challenging times now. But of course, we can, we can take comfort, just like Jesus did, of the ongoing presence and strength of God as we live for him in this world. Paul's going to look at this more next week, but we see the reality of this very clearly in the verses that follow. Because when the disciples come back down the mountain with Jesus, it really is a crash back down to earth. They're hit immediately by the realities of living and ministering in a fallen world. They're being, the other disciples that weren't up on the mountain are being challenged by the Pharisees and they're being attacked. They're being reminded of the spiritual warfare that's going on. They're, they're, they're confronted by the tough realities of ministry as well. The disciples are frustrated that by their own strength they hadn't been able to heal someone. You can just imagine the glory of the mountaintop must have felt just like a million years ago when they faced that scene at the bottom of the mountain. But that's a challenge that we all face too, isn't it? We can't live our lives always up enjoying the glory of the mountaintop. We do need to come down and face the realities of life and ministry. We can often have an amazing experience with God and just keep going back and back to that, rather than moving on to what God's got for us next. It might be a time of particular intimacy with God. It might have been a church camp. It might have been even a previous church, or a particularly fruitful time of ministry. And we keep looking backwards, wanting to enjoy the glory of the mountaintop. But the fact is, and we see it here, that whilst it's good to rejoice and be glad in the good times... We also need to step forward into the next thing that God has for us with the confidence that he is able and he will provide for us as we step into the unknown future. Very quickly, the transfiguration for us reminds us who Jesus really is. And I think this scene serves as a bit of a correction for us in the evangelical world today. I half think that we've gone too far in presenting and viewing Jesus as a benevolent friend, 
as our next door neighbour, as our friend who walks along the way with us and have lost sight of the fact that whilst that is true, he is equally the glorious, majestic King of glory. Sometimes I feel that particularly with the the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. You know what I'm talking about. The songs that could equally be applicable to someone you're in an earthly relationship with and not the King of glory. Let me ask you, how do you picture Jesus? Is he more a compassionate therapist for you? Or is he the one, the glorious one, who commands all of your energy, all of your worship, all of your time and your strength Is Jesus the one that you worship just on Sundays or every moment of every day? How do you view Jesus? Maybe we all need to see him for who he really is. And so, we're left with the question that we started with. Is your Jesus big enough? I'll put my hand up. God's been convicting me through this preparation. I don't think my Jesus is anywhere near big enough. He's closer to the benevolent counsellor than the king of glory that those disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Is your Jesus so glorious, so powerful, so majestic, that he just overshadows all else in your life? Mark is showing us that the real Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture, is. He is big enough. He's worth living for. He's worth denying yourself for. He's even worth dying for. Because there's no one else like him. He's not just a mere prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is God. He's worth living for and he's worth dying for. Jesus is big enough.